Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 19. This is part 4. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. This is almost hypnotic stuff, example after example after example and it's, it's like hypnotic preparation for what's about to come. We pre- he's preparing us to open up and I love that. So let's move on. So I, I'd like to know what you've got for the next little bit because we go into, in my version of the book, into this concept of eyes and Capital letter I. Okay. You... Well, well, where I've got to after the Herbert Spencer and yeah, uh, uh, thing, and he he does say he's getting us in now. He says in order to transcend the three dimensional sphere, it's necessary to expand or change forms of re- receptivity. And he said, and then he poses a question where he says, "Is that even possible?" He says, "Is the expansion of the limits of receptivity possible?" Okay, and is yeah. it? I mean, he then gives us these examples of people, great um, philosophic works uh, and people like Annie Besant, who's you know, a theosophist and so on. Uh, and he gives us these examples. For me, uh, while I'm not a great fan of reading the book in these podcasts, I think it's worth you going through them uh, if you have them. I mean, we start off with um, complex, you know, the study of complex forms of consciousness and he goes through one or two people who've done it and starts with Plotinus, the philosopher of Alexandria, Alexandria in the 3rd century. So what he says is Plotinus, the famous Alexandrian philosopher of the 3rd century, affirmed that for perfect knowledge, the subject and object must be united, that the rational agent and the thing being comprehended must not be separate. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that is interesting because he's really saying that you're kind of looking at, you're observing yourself because you are part of. That which sees is itself the thing which is seen. Yeah. Now you can wrap your head around that all day long. (laughs) It's interesting because a little bit further on, Spensky talks about the fact that we, we are conditioned to thinking of ourselves as so separate and that, you know, we've got that, inner self in each of us but it's in our body and that's that's where we're limiting it but in fact to expand that you have to come and 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 expand that to it's not in your body it's actually outside of you as well as inside of you and and so whatever you're you're observing outside is actually observing yourself yeah well it's a very clumsy way of putting it what 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 do you think it means well aspensky tells us to investigate what we mean by to see. Ah, yes. And it means that you have to understand seeing in something other than the three-dimensional, materialistic, literal sense. You know, the seeing changes with the changes of a state of consciousness in which it is proceeding. In other words, the very act of observation changes the thing that's observed, which is what, um, obviously, the, the, the... mathematicians uh, have, to their shock and surprise, come to realise. 
that the very act of observing something changes its um, changes the what they get back from it. I don't have that. Oh, he said. Well, he's added it in. <laughs> Maybe it's something yeah. that happened uh, between the, the the editing of the original and this one being completed. Yeah. Maybe it, it's something in mathematics that was that was that was coming to pass. It it makes more sense. He says for me. It says here. Uh, it is indeed necessary to understand, to see in the sense of intuition. No, he says, other than in the literal sense. In, and then he says, the seeing changes with the changes of the state of consciousness in which it's proceeding. And then he poses another question. But what forms of consciousness exist? And then in my book, my version, he talks about um, Hindu philosophies, uh, which divide consciousness into four states, sleep, dream waking and this state of absolute consciousness turiya and he says that um, if you want to find out uh, an explanation of those four states then you would read the ancient wisdom by annie besant who's a, a theosophist and he is obviously a follower of blavatsky's theosophy so he would know of annie besant and i think what is what what is pointed out here is is really good because I wouldn't have ever thought before that sleeping, dreaming, waking, you know, that consciousness had different phases. I, you know, I've been conditioned to think that you're only conscious when you're consciously awake and that dreams are nothing. They mean nothing. But uh, okay. I, I would but I would say that if you look at dreams as a form of consciousness, it, they take on a new meaning, don't they? It's hard for me to discuss this because I've lived most of my adult life not believing what you believe. I've not been conditioned into this at all. I, uh, I had an aunt who was hugely influential on me, even from a, a small child. You know, in the mid nineteen sixties, before it became fashionable, she was doing yoga and teaching me about meditation and stuff. So, and we talked a lot about dreams and what they mean and how they're just as real as the, the waking world. So. It's difficult for me to discuss. I've never, I've never been in that frame where dreams and thoughts are just nothing. That's never been my experience of living. I guess, well, I mean, my upbringing as being a member of the Rosicrucian Order, you know, we, we looked at a lot of the uh, different different uh, aspects of, of reality, not just the mm. scientific. However, I hadn't. And, and I would say these days I do connect dreams as something meaningful. I certainly do. And I have some dreams that, you know, you, you kind of think, well, I've actually had an adventure. You know, and I've had dreams where I've picked up the same dream over many years and continued on, you know, so there's something in it. But I've never, until till I read this book, thought, oh, hang on, that is, it's not just my imagination. That is something that it's a state Separate. of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a and it's, it's an experience with a different lens. It's a, yeah. Well, here's the interesting part. You just say like you have the same dream, you know, and you pick it up years later, or, or you know, at a later time. Notice how that you're relating it to three dimensional linear time when clearly yeah, this is sequencing happening. It. Oh, this yeah. Whereas clearly this is happen happening as an unbroken thing. It's an un, mm. un, unbroken event outside of three dimensions. You, your dream focus focuses on it one one day in the three dimensional uh, world, and then a totally different 
day later on in the time sequence, in the linear sequence. And yet that dream that you're focusing on is always there. It's like if I'm in a, a warehouse with no lighting and I shine my torch on a box and then I go off somewhere else and I'm shining my torch all over the place. And then one day later, I walk back and I shine my torch on the original box. The box hasn't moved. It's still, it's always been there. But it looks to mm. me as though I'm now looking at the, I'm continuing to look at that box. Uh, and it's how amazing that, that box is still there three days later. Wow. But really the box hasn't moved. <laughs> you know, it's always been there. And that's the same with a, a, a discontinued dream. Yeah. And here's the thing, you know, when you have a dream where well, you have a night's sleep and you, you wake up, you talk about a dream you've had and it doesn't make sense and you think, well, hang on, that happened and that happened, that happened. And what I think happens is there's got many, many dreams happening at the same time. And when you remember mm. them, you remember a bit of this one, a bit of this one, a bit of this one, and you try and put it together. That's that's quite some... possible, isn't it? Because they will all, yeah. outside of the, the limitations of the 3D material uh, world of time and space, you could be experiencing multiple dreams simultaneously. And when you come back into this world, you can only get them you know you can only perceive them by thinking about them rationally as a whole pile of nonsense because they're all confused yeah. it's a bit like jeff it's a bit like the movie the fly <laughs> i don't i've not seen the fly oh uh, well the concept is quite simple somebody a scientist <laughs> is trying to work on teleportation and he thinks he found the answer and he gets to the point where he wants to try it himself, and so he sits into, inside his teleportation pod, ready to teleport to the far side of the, the lab, only he doesn't notice that a fly has flown into the teleportation pod with him, and so when he comes out the other side, he's half fly, half human. The original was late 1950s with Vincent Price. It was remade in the mid-80s horrifically with Jeff Goldblum oh it's sickening <laughs> but you should watch it <laughs> because that is where um, going outside of linear materialistic time and space two material objects um, managed to occupy the same space and time and when they came back they were still occupying it oh my god <laughs> it's just it's just appalling <laughs> anyway there you go there you go. Well, see, this is, yeah, so this is this is the interesting thing because science does not put any credence on dreams, thoughts, uh, anything, um, imagination, anything that's abstract. Science puts no credence on it. And Spensky gets to this point where he says that under ordinary conditions, the consciousness is surrounded by what constitutes its its receptivity, um, its sense organs, how it perceives the phenomenal world. But it recognises this, this phenomenal world is real and outside of that, everything is unreal. So the dreams are unreal, um, the whole subjective world is unreal, thoughts, feelings, etc. They're not real. And I think he's linking it to this concept earlier where he talked about what we think is material. And, you know, that's going to be something that's occupying one piece of space and time. And that's what he's sort of hooking in, I think, and saying that's what we've been conditioned to think of as real and the rest of it's yeah, not real. Exactly. Uh, I like um, the quote from Plotinus as well, um, where Plotinus is trying to explain 
these various forms of um, existence uh, and conception. And he says, the first or spiritual state was ecstasy. From ecstasy it forgot itself. Notice the terms. From ecstasy it forgot itself into deep sleep. Yeah. From profound sleep it awoke out of unconsciousness, but still within itself into the eternal world, internal world of dreams. From dreaming it passes finally into the thoroughly waking state and the outer world of sense. In other words, this... This experience of the waking world, if we put it into that sequence, is the last on the list. And the purest form of existence is ecstasy, which anybody, and he does say that this has been related um, in Mead's preface to Taylor's translation of Plotinus, which I've seen, and he correlates it with the terminology of the Shankaracharya, um, of the, you know, Advaita Vedanta school in ancient India, uh, which also talks about these states of ecstasy. Now, anybody that's that's doing um, what I call empty-headed meditation is heading for this this state of nirvana, this state of ecstasy. In other words, they they want to have that experience of consciousness that is pure ecstasy. It's, this is quite common, and it's like. I don't think there's anything contentious about that. Anybody that knows anything about um, people following these um, Eastern paths of meditation. I mean, even uh, Zen Buddhism talks about this state called Sartori, uh, which is a flash, but you have this experience of, of the ecstasy state as well. So it's not new and it's not, and it's not confined to one system. So what's, what's interesting for me is the commonality around the world of this where people did record his, uh, their experiences, so we're talking about the Far East, um, they talk about the same thing that Plotinus then talks about, and they, they have their yeah. descriptions of it. Uh, so, so what does that prove? Well, from a scientific point of view, nothing. But from the point of view of, of logic, the idea that people so, um, so distanced by um, space and time came come to the same conclusions ought to ought to make us stop and think about that what does that mean it probably means there's something in it just because we don't have scientific tools to prove that or measure that doesn't mean that there isn't something in it because it seems like there is it's a yeah. bit like thor heyerdahl thor heyerdahl had exactly the same scientific idea when he started seeing things that uh, that were in the hawaiian islands and South America and so on and so what did he do? He launched a balsa wood raft called Contiki to go and prove that it was possible for them to have been connected. He tried to use science to prove that that's what had happened. I'm going to suggest that that's not what had happened because he was using materialistic science. And then he did the same thing about the pyramids. Pyramids in Egypt, pyramids in Central America. So he did another expedition where he built a boat called Ra and went across the Atlantic to to prove that the pyramids could have been taken, the idea of the pyramids could have been taken there. All I'm saying is that, you know, these things do make people think. Now, if you're a scientist like Thor Heyerdahl, then you're going to try to um, hammer in a scientific explanation for how these things could have happened, that people that shouldn't have been able to communicate were able to do it using the, the tools available only to a savage. But, you know... 
the fact of it is that this does happen. People in, all over the world have the same experiences and the same concepts without being able to send each other telegrams, letters and emails. And, and we know too, we, we've got examples where two people in totally different parts of the world, unconnected, no communication, come up with the same idea, yeah, come up with the same invention. Absolutely, we do. I mean, you, the, the question that the scientist never asks, and I'll come back to Thor Heyerdahl, is, you know, he sees pyramids in Central America. He sees pyramids in Egypt. And he thinks, well, yeah, that's the same thing. They must have gone across there. Tell me now, if you built pyramids in Egypt, what in the Sam Hill would make you think, we'll go to the other end of the Mediterranean, we're going to go through the Strait of Gibraltar, out into this hugely unfriendly ocean called the Atlantic. We're going to traverse a few thousand miles. And when we get there, we're going to go build a pyramid here. Oh, come on. Really? Yes. Seriously? Really? Um, ask the question. Uh, and that's where science, to me, has its problems. Well, one of, one of the areas where it has its problems. Ask that question. What would have made them want to go? How would they have even known it was there? Because from our point of view, we don't have, they didn't have maps. They didn't know that there was going to be something out there at the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah, it's one hell of a project, isn't it? <laughs> it's a heck of a thing, isn't it? You know? Tell you what, let's all pile into this wooden boat. When you get to the mid-Atlantic, um, when, when waves are reaching something like 20 feet... Uh, isn't there something part of you that might say, probably better if we turn back now and go home? Yeah, and uh, how many of how many of them did they send out and didn't ever got there in the first place? Oh well, they should have been back by now, so I guess they must have perished. Next lot, get that pyramid built. <laughs> send you lot out. It's like yeah, it doesn't make sense. But even if we take it down to even something really basic, when we we look at uh, primitive tools that they dig up, archaeological digs, they dig up primitive tools. Now, primitive tools are pretty much the same. An axe is pretty much the same looking thing as an axe in one continent as it is in another. Now, don't tell me that they all got together and worked out the best way to make an axe. You know, it's... it's Because I'm I'm pretty sure that the guys in Australia did take it upon themselves to travel to Europe and say... Have you got one of these? Have you got one of these? We find this fantastic. And then the Viking turns up and says, hey, yeah, it's just like ours. How fantastic is that? Brilliant. Go home now. This is our country. (laughs) (laughs) What the heck? You know, it's not... You can't... I find it ludicrous. There are other things, you know, like they'll tell you about the Ice Age bridges and like, you know, how the North American Plains Indians actually um, originated in Siberia and they crossed the... I'm not even interested because we know that there are too many inexplicable uh, items like that. So yeah. let's not go there. I don't really care, honestly, and it's not part of Ospensky's book, so we won't discuss that. If people want to know it, there's loads of documentaries. You'll find them on YouTube. You can even watch Ancient Aliens with that, that Greek guy who's got the strange hair and, this, and the snazzy dress, and dress sense. But we, we, we're going to stick with Ospensky. Which is, yes, while we're here. So it all, all being very interesting nonetheless. So Spensky moves on to he's, you know, this, this idea of nirvana that you're talking about. And he talks about other, as you say, other people who have experienced this flash of 
having a consciousness that it has expanded outside of the third, third dimension. And his point is that it, it's not something you could actually live in all the time. It's, it's a flash. It's something that happens um, for maybe once in your life for a moment or maybe repeats itself. But what it leaves you with is the understanding that, um, that, that, that experience is outside of, of what, what you've had in this third dimension. And now I'll just check with you if I, I, I was thinking of wanted to moving on to this little part about Sir Edward Arnold, what he wrote about, um, what the experience is like, or am I going too far ahead? No, 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 that's pretty good because I mean, I did, I did make a, a note that when we're talking about that stages of awareness that Plotinus wrote in that translation, he does say that in associating it with the Indian experience, um, they interpret it a different way. In, in, in as much as they, in India, say that the waking state is the most illusory state and going backwards to the state of ecstasy, you're going backwards into the, the more you go towards that, the less of an illusion you're experiencing. In other words, the real, we have this ludicrous, yeah, I'm going to say it's ludicrous perception that, that the material positivism is the, the reality and everything else is another form of consciousness. Whereas they look at it from completely the other way. When you're in this state where the only thing that you can perceive is the three-dimensional world, you are absolutely 100% in a world of illusion. And as you go further towards, you know, from dream state, you know, to, to, to from thought to dream state and then deep dream state and then ecstasy, you're getting closer and closer to actual reality and further away from illusion. In other words, they see it the way that I've experienced it and other people have experienced it too. And that's my belief and my, and my reality. Mm. Yeah. And Spensky touches on that too. He says, you know, it's, to to get to this state, you have to understand. You have to not just you know, intellectualize, but you really get to understand the unreality of phenomena yeah, and the reality the of everything that isn't phenomena. Yeah, and uh, and he, he he talks about um, the transition into the absolute. I'm, I'm reading this. The transition. No, I'm glad that you're reading that because I was going to say, please don't miss out these little inter, these little um, names that he's he's using. These yes, terms. so. Yeah, that's what I thought too. So this this is what his Spensky has written. This transition into the absolute state of consciousness is an inverted commas union with divinity, vision of God, experiencing the kingdom of heaven, entering nirvana. All these expressions of mystical religions represent the psychological fact of the expansion of consciousness, such an expansion that the consciousness absorbs itself in the all. Perfect. And it's great. And you know what I'm really glad about there is that he's put the Christian experience names in. Very, very Christian. It's like, eat that. Eat that. I'm going to rub your face in it. All of you... Um, occultists and new agers who de who oh the, the the bible christianity god i don't use god i use the the creator or or the worse source i we we're going back to source <laughs> well let me tell you source is something that i put on my meat and potato pie that's source and i hate these they they can't they're they're all they're all so aware and open and oh 
and they can't even cope with the word God. You've got a lot, long way to go before you're aware, people. When you can't use the word God uh, in, in any kind of form. Of, oh, by the way, the lavender's definitely worn off. I'm on one. Um, <laughs> I was going to say. No, but the, 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 this, this, is, this is interesting. I love the fact that Uspensky isn't afraid of these terms. These people, for example, St. John of the Cross, who wrote of the dark night of the soul, Thomas Aquinas, these people have had this experience. How did they have this experience? Through the most intense meditational program that they put, chose to put themselves through. This, this is like the, the Indian mystics, the gurus. These, this, they've, they've spent years in many cases. Some people have an accidental flash. I understand that. You know, oh, I, I was suddenly walking through the park and I became aware of this. But most people gently work at this and they meditate and, and they give their focus to it and they expand their consciousness until suddenly they get the flash and they, they've reached the level that they didn't understand was there until they experienced it. And then you have difficulty finding words for it. The kingdom of heaven would be a Christian term. You know, the vision of God. He only puts one in at the end, and entering nirvana, that's not Christian. But he's used Christian terminology, and I like it because he's not afraid of it. He does understand that Christianity has a mystical experience way beyond... Mind you, Uspensky wouldn't have even known that the New Age was coming. Would he? He just wouldn't. This is 1920. He died long before the New Ages came about with with their, oh, we have to reject anything that's like organized religion. And so he didn't he, he didn't have to put up with people who would suddenly look look down their noses at these um the the Christian mystical writings. Vespinsky brings everybody into the book. He to, you know, he brings in all all brands of hallelujah, shall we say, and all paths of mystical viewpoints i mean he's he's not you're right he's not shy and why should he be because really all these different ways of explaining something uh, are explaining the same thing they're, yeah, they're, they they're just organized in a different way i'll say that mysticism is mysticism no matter what platform it comes out of yeah there are those that never there are millions of people in every single religion yes even the eastern ones that never go beyond the platform of it whereas there are the mystics that go beyond the platform and there are therefore at that point are no longer a, a part of the platform. When St. John of the Cross had the dark night of the soul, he was still technically a Christian, but he understood things that Christians never understand unless they have their own personal experience of the mystical aspect of it. Um, we can talk about Christian symbolism and we can talk about Christ the Redeemer, the Christos, um, which is why you can sometimes... I mean, you have this thing, oh, Christmas, and they spell it with an X. It's so lazy, isn't it, to do that? No, it's not. X is actually a Greek letter. It's chi, and it's the first letter of Christ in Greek, which is the only language that it was ever originally written in. Christos, and it means the Redeemer. It has, and it's centered on the heart chakra, if we want to, like, associate that with an if, another form of philosophy. There you go. So, but I like that Uspensky isn't afraid of any of it. He knew, by the way, he, Uspensky would have known what I've just said. And he's, he's talking to a Christian audience, which he would be completely, yeah. 100%. And so he's used terms that they would all be familiar with, that wouldn't be like looking down their noses with their stupid arrogance, thinking that they knew better. 
Let me tell you, Alistair Crowley, Alistair Crowley, the great demon, which he isn't, but um, the, the, the great occultist, and all of those occultists from the Golden Dawn series of Systems of Magic were quite happy, happily using these terms, these mystical terms, from the background that they knew so well. They did use others as well. I mean, they did investigate Eastern's, Eastern philosophies and obviously the, the hidden philosophies from of the West, because he says a Western tradition but that they're looking at. But they happily used these Christian mystical terms because they knew full well the power of them. There is no point in using a term that you've made up to dissociate yourself from the mainstream that no one understands Source. what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, well it's like sandwich. this... <laughs> well, it's like this raising my you know vibration. What the hell does that mean? It's just it, it means I, nothing. I don't know. It means absolutely nothing. But uh, but it's yeah, I'm with you. It's he's communicating and brilliant. And I like uh, I, I just I really love the next little bit that he uh, quotes what Sir Edward Arnold writes about this condition, this you know, kingdom of heaven, this entering nirvana. This what what is it like? He explains it as the dewdrop slips into the shining sea. And he further goes on to say, well, you know, that's a great way of explaining it. He said, but it's not the right way around. In fact, the feeling when you talk to people who have experienced this is that the sea pours into the dewdrop, which is, uh, I think, is a beautiful way of expressing it because I can I can imagine what it would be like. Now, imagine imagine that you are the dewdrop. If you are raising your vibration, your frequency, so that you become one with the vast unlimited, you're going to have a terrible experience of um, frustration and failure. And anybody that claims that they've done it has had an experience of frustration and failure and they're lying. Because as Uspensky points out here, it's again, it's one of those universal things. People from all over the globe that have had no communication with each other talk about the experience in being the same. It is as though the whole became me and poured into me. So you, the individual, are the dewdrop in this analogy. And suddenly the realization comes that the whole pours into me and I'm, I'm not part of the whole. The whole is is me. It's incredible. So that the ones who are, who see themselves as this little bit of consciousness raising its vibration so that it can then experience the the vast limited unlimited oneness, they're going in the wrong direction. It's trying to it's, imagine a dripping tap, a drop of water coming out of the dripping tap. Imagine that drop of water trying to force itself to go back up into the tap. That's what they're doing. They put their put their ladder up against the wrong wall. They pretty much have. Uh, uh, look, I, even even this is difficult to explain. But I, uh, this is where I have some issues. If people would read more, they would actually find a uh, um, many platforms from which they can they can have their journey experience. But they don't read, do they? They talk to each other. They go to meditation classes and yoga, and they they've heard some smart ass in Glastonbury talk about raising the vibration, and suddenly that's become a thing. Well, guess what? It it's going to be doomed for a lot of them, uh, and and it's a shame. But if they would read something like this, it might give them a flash of inspiration. That that one yeah. little bit about that Ledbetter talks about here, you know, in this essay in the Theosophist, 
sums it up. It sums up the experience that people all over the world have had. And the feeling is mm. is absolutely contrary to what a lot of these um, vibration raisers are striving for. It's it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Some of them, some of them will have the experience accidentally, and and then they will know. But um, a lot of them are striving the wrong way. I mean, if you're trying to climb to the top of a building, but you're going down the stairs, you're not going to get there, are you? No, it's exactly so. And Aspensky. He explains something very well here, I think, because he's saying that this this pouring um, of you know the ocean into the the drop is because consciousness doesn't ever lose itself; it doesn't disappear. No, it only looks it like it's disappeared when it's changing its form, and it's and he says that you know it doesn't need to change very much to escape our field. So it's there, but you know we've got this field. Um, that we see it and we think it's gone, but it's just changing outside of our field. That's absolutely the thing. Can I ask you a question about your version of the book? Um, yeah. Do you, ha- do you have this, this little quote? It's just after the Edwin Ar- Arnold, uh, Sir Edwin Arnold uh, part, where he does explain, and it's like in lower type, the consciousness widens the sea with its centre everywhere and its circumference nowhere. What a phrase. Yeah, that's beautiful. Meditate on that. Meditate on that one, and tell me why you want to raise your vibration. And he and he says this, and I love this is a great and glorious fact. Not, mm, let, let's talk about that as philosophers and wonder what that means. It's like I'm not. I'm not even going to talk to you. It is a fact. Everybody that's been here experiences the same thing. He says, but when a man attains it, it seems to him that his consciousness has widened to take in all that, not that he's merged into something else. Now you understand what he's saying there. He's saying that what you realize is that you, little drop, haven't merged with something bigger, that you were all, you always were this bigger thing and you're now massively aware of it and it's ecstasy. It's an ecstatic experience. That that is beautiful. It makes so much sense too. And this this concept to me of this the center everywhere. If if we what we are all the center, we're yeah. you know all of us are everywhere. We're all the center. And, and the circumference is nowhere. It there only is no sounds strange. Yeah. Well, it's it only sounds strange from a three dimensional linear time and location point of view. Euclidean. Yes. Euclidean. It's exactly. ooh. I say. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly right. So, so when we when we shift just a little bit, that that can make this huge change of the way we see things. And uh, I, uh, it makes. Well, look how he look how he puts it after that when he talks about in the objective world, this slipping of the dewdrop into the sea leads to the annihilation of the drop to the absorption of it by the sea, which is not what happens. That's why the other way around. In the real world, the subjective world, yeah, the drop of consciousness merging with the sea of consciousness knows it, but it doesn't itself cease to exist because of that. Therefore, undoubtedly, the sea is absorbed by the drop. He puts it so well there. (laughs) He really does. I love that. The drop of consciousness merging with the sea of consciousness knows it, but it does not itself cease to exist because of that. Therefore, undoubtedly, the sea is absorbed by the drop. Boom. 
Strike one. And then, he says, we have no definite data (laughs) at all to think that it is dissipated. In order to escape from the field um, possible to our observation, it is sufficient for consciousness to change only a little. Yeah. So he's he's not he's, he's not saying that this is hard either. He's, he's no, it saying isn't. That it's it's so attainable. Do you know what is hard? Doing it the wrong way round. This is why all these vibration raisers are so smug about people who haven't reached their level yet. Well, their level's lower. To just sit where you are in the three-dimensional world, you're already higher than somebody that's uh, descending the ladder. Yeah. And you're descending the ladder when you're looking at it the wrong way around. You definitely are. Not everybody that does this ascension stuff is is as wildly wrong uh, as I as I'm saying. Some of them actually do move in the right way, but so many of them are fooled into going this hard way. And once you, once you've told, oh, it's difficult and it can take years and everything to attain. Um, believe me, you'll make that your reality, won't you? And because you're trying so hard, you have to get something from it. So what you'll do is you'll allow your ego to tell yourself and then other people that they, they're not as good as you. They're not, they're not doing what you're doing. Therefore, they're not right. And it's so three-dimensional thinking, isn't it? There's a sequence. Yep. You have to go from here to here to here to here. That's, that's not how that happens. That's not how it works. That's three-dimensional so thinking for something that isn't three-dimensional. How many, how many of the... Um, the writings on pe- from people who had the flash of Sartori, to use a Buddhist term, um, how many of them describe working hard for millions of years, really meditating, meditating as hard as I can, and, and then and then by persistence reaching it? Most often it's, it's a flash, it happens. Once you're in the right mindset, then it will happen. And most of them talk about this, flash of inspiration that comes there isn't a sequence there isn't there isn't a hierarchy that you go through well the ones that i've read about they, they haven't actually been in the state of meditation when it's happened they they've been going no exactly there are plenty of yeah there are plenty of people like eckhart tolly when he talks about his awakening yeah it's not it's he, exactly he so. wasn't you know he wasn't doing any of that Whatever you think of Eckhart Tolle, you know, people have different views, but I do think that his work, uh, The Power of Now, is a significant um, work for people who, who want to, to live a more comfortable life um, mm. with themselves. But, uh, you know, people do. People, lots of people have. However, there are plenty of mystics that, that are, have worked for the mystical experience, but they don't rigidly clasp their hands in prayer and grit their teeth as they work so hard at prayer. By the way, prayer is another word that I'm not frightened of using. Oh, we have to use yeah. meditation because prayer is so Christian. Well, no. What do you think meditation is? And what do you think a prayer is? When Carthusian monks live in um, what's, what in prison would be called solitary confinement and spend most of their days in prayer, you know, connecting with the divine these are people that are not sitting in a in a really dreary cell saying please father god i hope you take care of all the little children and i hope you bring me and my mummy they don't this is not 
prayer. What they're doing is what you other people out there would call meditation. And it is a really rigorous meditation, but it's not hard. It is a divine connection that they're achieving because every religion, and I mean every religion, has a mystical component as its foundation if you're prepared to actually uh, read a book and find it. There's no need to go outside of the culture that you were brought up into. How much more comfortable is it if you were brought up in a Christian community to use the, the, the path of Christian mysticism to achieve nirvana rather than try to do things that uh, from a culture that you were not born into that are going to be incredibly difficult for you to use to do? Common sense to me. The great occultists knew this. The only religion that doesn't have a spiritual aspect to it is the religion of science yeah which is which has become the new religion we won't go into why but it has mm. Mm. and i would i would then say that therefore it is not a religion it's more a cult <laughs> and, yeah well <laughs> ah now that's interesting because there's yeah the differentiation between a religion and a cult um now a religion may operate in the same way that a cult is but the cult yeah, yeah. aspect of anything isn't religious, is it? It's about control. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. There's no mystical side to it to the cult. Yeah. The essence of the teachings, and then there's the rigour and structure of the three-dimensional way of it that, that really has nothing to do with the... Yeah, I, have, I, I, do, I do have this issue with the, with the, like, the New Ages who, like, really would twist themselves into knots. They're virtually doing a Masonic handshake to, to come up with a word for God when they're using source or the infinite source of all creation and things. It's like, well, yeah. why, why not the great architect of the universe, eh? Why not become a Mason? They wouldn't have me in, the blackballing bastards. But the... <laughs> a bit Monty Python never does any harm, does it? But, um... But why not? Why not just use the, the the tools that you from the culture that you were born into? They're there for you to use. That mystical element is right there. And it, when you get to the mystical element of it, it's the same all over the world. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Nevertheless, moving on. Yes. So I'm now looking a little bit more of Plotinus in the letters to Flaccus talking about external objects presented, presented only with appearances. It's, it's just a concise... Yeah, literally, uh, he's doing something that he's, he did early on in the book. He's using somebody else to back up what he's been saying Nothing and what like he said early on. You know, yeah. I think that you know, the letters of Flaccus to Plotinus, they would be interesting enough, but they're not necessary for us to go into in detail here because... When we've been dissecting what Spensky's actually said, I think we've covered everything in the letters. So, Yeah. I could give you a quick little summation of them. If well, yeah, sure. Feel free. I'm letters of, of Flaccus basically covered that external objects are only, they only present as appearances. They're not, they don't give us any knowledge, but just they, they present us with an opinion. We have an opinion of them as opposed to any knowledge of them. And that's because the mind is able to perceive ideal truth and therefore um, ideal truth is within us. So it's not about how we perceive the outside world. It comes from within us. And if we think about that um, concept that the sea falling into the drop, that's, that's the ideal truth, isn't it? It is. Coming, that, that we, we have. Um, 
and the objects we contemplate and that which contemplates are identical, both are thought. Um, the world of ideas lies within our intelligence and therefore truth is not what we agree as the perception of the object. It is the agreement of the mind with itself. And I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, the agreement of the mind with itself. Yeah, that's the only yeah. truth. And I love I love this. Can, can I bap a phrase in now that, that, that I please think do. is... Please do. It pleases me. Well, it pleases me to hear it, to hear this. It, I, I think it's brilliant. He who does not understand how the soul contains the beautiful within itself seeks to realise beauty without by laborious production. In other words, if you don't see that the whole is within you, then you will spend hours and years of harsh teeth gritting meditation to try to get there to that realization and what this is saying is exactly what i said earlier on it's a dead easy process it's it's all there and if you tell yourself otherwise which which the um vibration raisers always try to tell you um the ascensionistas as i call them um They'll tell you that it's a harsh, it's it's a long, hard road, you know. But if you persist, you'll get. You, if you persist, you'll get there like I have when they haven't. Um, but this tells this tells the story the other way around. Yeah, and it would serve the purpose of those that want you to labour, to to strive, to keep taking in what they're dishing out. It would be in their best interest for you to believe that, wouldn't it? Yeah, because they'll, they'll keep them a level above. Yeah, all the structures that are in place to to um, keep you in a, a holding pattern do that by pretending that you have something to strive for that you don't already have. And Dostoevsky's here to tell you otherwise, along with I won't others. go into here the way that the entire New Age was manufactured, and it was manufactured to do exactly that, which it was. Uh, we don't need to to talk about that people can go elsewhere to, to look at that but it was and it's done that we know that it's done it and and we know mm. that for a fact that it's done it never seen so many egocentric people claiming to have spiritual awakening telling us that we're all lesser beings for not for not following what they say <laughs> i'm going to move on on that lavender free yeah, note i think we should <laughs> i I, I think we should wrap this one up now because we've we've come to the end of this chapter and it's well, a fantastic chapter taking us into what's coming next. So well, just, I do want to just put put one little summation here that that really what Spensky finishes up with, and he says in essence to experience the infinite you, you need to let go of the finite self. In other words, liberation of the mind and the finite consciousness, um, like you can only apprehend like so. If, if you are limiting yourself, you'll only see what is, is like what you've limited. That's a really good point. And, I, I, and I'm glad that you brought that up. And, and this is the conclusion, actually. That point is a great conclusion. So I think that's brilliant. And I think this, this whole chapter and I, where, where Spensky starts with talking about the knowledge you get from emotions, and I think that's his pointer. You know, you get down to that pure emotion. That's your guide. Yeah, it is. I should point out here that um, I'm not wedded to any system, but I do know that I am wedded to things. I am not the perfect guru that's reached, that's attained permanent nirvana and disappeared up its own arsehole. I haven't done that. Um, 
I, I am having my human experience, but I, I do like to point out to these people who do think that they're so deeply spiritual that um, there's, there's massive pointers in your behavior and your language and the way you talk to other people and uh, the way you put yourself out into the world that suggests that you're nowhere even near the bottom rung of the ladder yet. But Uspensky tells us in chapter 19 that we've just spent a long time going through where the bottom of, bottom rung of that ladder is. And now he's going to take us up rung after rung after rung as we carry on through this book. Oh, yeah. It's it just up and up from here. And this is this, this book just gains momentum and it just gets better Doesn't and better. Doesn't it just? It really, yeah, really does. Brilliant. Loving it. And, and I must say that uh, first read through, I picked up stuff. The second read through and the, the conversations, I, I'm just, you know, blown away by the things that I actually glossed over, thinking, oh, yeah, I know all about emotions. Well, I knew fuck all. I knew fuck all about emotions <laughs> until, <laughs> until we really started talking about what he's, what is he actually saying. And I think that's the, that's the crux it's of important. it. You know, you can, you, yeah, there's a lot to take in. There is so much to take in that you, you can very easily you skip know, a sentence that was really important. You know, what? The, the best part about doing these things for me is that, look, I have my strong opinions about a lot of things with it, you know. Um, but the important thing is for people that listen is that they don't gloss over it. That if we, if we pick up a point, no matter how savage I am, not a, um, you know, obviously, a, and I'm, I'm a cunning, a cunning savage, obviously. Um, <laughs> but however, however harsh I am or however like strident I am about something, the real thing is, please, you think about what it means to you. Don't gloss over these points. It would, it's such a dense book that it would be easy to just like start skipping through like people, you know, it's a natural thing to do when you're reading a book. I'd like, you know, I'd like people to get out of this, these these discussions that we have disagree with me by all means, but at least be thinking about what Ispensky is saying and what that actually means to you and how that, how do you translate that into your own, your own ex human experience? That's what I think is great about having these discussions and dissecting the chapters as we do. I know that in the next yeah. chapter, and this is a bit of a spoiler, we, we're going to come back to good old Hinton. I can't wait. I don't know how much lavender there is in the world to calm me down over that, but I, <laughs> I look forward to it. Well, we, we'll work out a way, Pete, that Hinton will, we not, will. Not, not impact on you adversely. He's, not, he's not going to lower my vibration, is he? No, he's not. He's not. And, and you know, he's not going to um, potentially stop us from having to put an explicit when we post this. Not exactly. <laughs> All right Podcast. then, my darling. Let's, well, let's, thank let's you so much, up. Pete. Yeah, lots of love to you for uh, all the wonderful conversation we've had today. And um, thank you, everyone else, for listening. And we are about to embark on Chapter 20 next podcast. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a gem. Yeah. All right, then. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>